recently on Facebook with this, uh, with, with this meme. I don't know, is that a meme? Is that... You would think somebody who's turning 42 would know if it's a meme. Um, but uh, if it's not a meme, ask your kids what a meme is. I have no idea. Anyway, um, I, somebody shared this with me, tagged me with this. As the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Uh, and just so you know, I did not share this in 30 minutes, so I didn't get the blessing that was promised. But um, actually, the truth is, truth is, um, I, I wish I could say that, but I can't. I know people, and I admire people who can say that, but I can't. That's not me. Um, now, if you've been here for a while, you know me, I hope, and you know my high regard for the Bible, you know my passion for truth and for accuracy, uh, and I suppose that it's my passion for truth and accuracy that causes, for me anyway, to have doubt as my default position. Um, I want to know what the Bible actually says. Not what I think it says, not what someone tells me it says, not what I wish it says, but what it actually says. And just as importantly, I want to know if there is a good, reasonable reason to believe what it says. Now, it may sound like a circular argument to use Scripture to prove a point on this, and it is a circular argument, I admit that, but... Um, when it comes to the pursuit of truth, even whether or not the Bible itself is true, it's Jesus who encouraged us in this pursuit of truth. He said, the truth, the truth will set you free. So it's the truth, capital T, that I pursue, not what the Bible says regardless the truth. And that actually is my kind of inspiration for this very brief series of messages that we've been doing during the month uh, May. There are people in Scripture who claim to be eyewitnesses of a resurrected Jesus. And they wrote in Scripture that they were telling us these things, what they saw, because they wanted us to believe what they saw and heard and touched. 
So what we've been doing, what we're going to continue to do, just for the month of May, for the few weeks of May, is we're going to take a look at what these eyewitnesses had to say and ask about truth. Now, last week, um, having fielded about a half dozen questions from what we talked about, I realized last week that I actually didn't start back in time far enough. So this week, um, in what was originally supposed to be a Mother's Day lesson, I decided to scrap that and to actually go back in time a little bit to how it was that Jesus came to be in a tomb before that weekend when some eyewitnesses say they saw that he had walked out of a tomb. So we're going to actually go back in time a little bit. We're going to start in John chapter 19, and we're going to pick up this story immediately after Jesus was found to be dead. In John chapter 19, I'm going to start reading at verse 38. And then I recommend, you know, you may want to keep your Bible open um, as, and so you can see some things we talk about. I'm going to start reading at chapter 19, verse 38. Afterwards, in other words, immediately after Jesus was found to be dead. Afterwards, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, Joseph asked Pilate, the Roman governor who had uh, caused Jesus to be executed, he asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment, spices, powdered spices, made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go inside. Then Simon Peter arrived, and he went right inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings, linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus would, must rise from the dead. And then they went home. Now, um, a, a Roman crucifixion um, was, was a brutal thing. And it was brutal in part because a crucifixion was actually intended to prolong a person's dying as long as possible. Because it was something that was intended to die, to, for a person to die slowly over a period of time, probably a couple of days, it was not normal for a person who was crucified to die within just a few hours' time, uh, like Jesus did, but he did. He was nailed to the cross, according to the witnesses, and extraneous history as well. He was nailed to the cross sometime around 9 a.m. Friday morning, 
And he ended up dying sometime around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Uh, there were two other men that were crucified with Jesus. Uh, they were still alive in late afternoon of Friday. So when people saw that Jesus had died, there was actually some surprise that he was dead that early. Now, most uh, medical scholars and biblical scholars who study this point out that when you follow what had happened to Jesus, they point out that Jesus had been very brutally beaten starting and scourged um, starting late Thursday evening, the early, very early morning hours of Friday, and that beating, uh, brutal, had, brutal beating had continued for a couple hours into the early morning hours of Friday. So by the time Jesus got to the cross, he had already lost a lot of blood and probably didn't have a whole lot of strength left. Plus, uh, what we know from crucifixion is that the only way you can keep yourself alive when you're hanging from your arms, the only way to keep yourself alive because of what that does to a body is you have to push yourself up using the nails, your, your ankles, the nails driven through your feet, you have to push yourself up in order to continue breathing, which is why, and well, you'll see this, I won't read it, which is why the other two victims, when it was discovered that they were still alive, the other two victims had their legs broken by the Romans late Friday afternoon, because if you break their legs, they could no longer push themselves up and they couldn't breathe and then they would die quickly. But Besides that, besides the brutality of how Jesus had already been treated, I think, truthfully, I don't think um, that by late afternoon that Jesus was actually trying to stay alive, truthfully. So I think in the last hours on the cross, the educated guess is that he was probably no longer lifting himself up and trying to breathe. I think he was ready when he announced it's finished. I don't know that for sure. It's speculation. But I don't think he was fighting death. And so by late afternoon, Jesus was dead. Now, there are two things that come into play here with the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. The, the Romans who did the crucifying, um, the Romans did not crucify people because it was a convenient way to kill uh, and execute criminals. It wasn't convenient, in fact. But they crucified people because it was a form of rule by terror. Uh, the Romans were very happy to leave bodies hanging on crosses until that body decomposed and turned into bones and just rotted and fell off the cross. Because for the Romans, uh, the, the sight of a body decomposing and being eaten by animals, birds, and wild dogs, it was all part of the warning to would-be rebels. That this is what happens to you if you mess with the power of Rome. So typically the Romans could care less about taking a body off a cross. It didn't matter to them at all. Now, the other thing that matters, the flip side is the Jews had a law about not leaving the body of a Jewish person unburied and hanging on a tree on the Sabbath day. And because historically we know that the Jewish Sabbath would be starting very soon at sundown on Friday, when Jesus died, we're just a few hours away from sundown, from the start of the Sabbath. Plus, on this particular occasion, it was a very special Sabbath. It was a Passover 
Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders wanted these three men down from the crosses and buried, which is why they ordered break their legs so they die quickly. But Jesus was already dead when they got to him. Now, when they found Jesus dead, all four gospel writers agree, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell us the same story about a man named Joseph who stepped forward at this point when Jesus was on the cross dead. And if you combine everything we know from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you combine it all to get a picture of this Joseph guy, we know that Joseph was a very wealthy man. Uh, We know that Joseph was a voting member of the Jewish ruling council, the highest governing body for the Jews, called the Sanhedrin. Ironically, it's the Sanhedrin that banded together to see Jews executed. They couldn't kill him themselves, so they had the Romans do it, but they're responsible. Joseph is part of that group. Uh, Joseph, Scripture tells us, is from Arimathea, um, a town we really don't know where it is, but uh, we know that by this point in time, his home is in Jerusalem. He had to be in Jerusalem to be a member of the Sanhedrin. We also know that up to this particular moment in time, we know that Joseph was a secret follower of Jesus because he had been afraid to stand up to his fellow rulers who wanted to kill Jesus. We don't know his motive, but it's easy to guess that when he saw what these guys did, when he saw the kind of people these rulers were, Joseph likely was ashamed of his cowardice, ashamed of the group of people he associated with, and he said, no more hiding. And he went to Pilate as a Jewish ruler. He had access to Pilate. He went to Pilate, the Roman governor, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now with him, Scripture tells us, Joseph took a man named Nicodemus. We know Nicodemus. He shows up several times in the Gospel of John. We know that Nicodemus was also a wealthy man. We know that Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. And we know that at least on one occasion, Nicodemus had tried to stand up for Jesus um, against the council, but he failed. We also know that he too was a secret follower of Jesus. Now the Romans, Pilate in the person of the Romans, typically the Romans didn't want to surrender bodies. They wanted them hanging But we also know that the Jews could be problems for the Romans. The Romans didn't like rebellion, so they liked to pacify the Jews. And we also know that Pilate never thought Jesus was guilty of the crimes he'd been accused of. So when Joseph and Nicodemus came to Pilate and said, can we have the bodies? Pilate let them take the body of Jesus. Take them, he said. And we know from Matthew that Joseph, this isn't identified in John, but we know from the Gospel of Matthew that Joseph actually had a family tomb right outside the walls of Jerusalem. Um, It was a new tomb, Scripture tells us, which means uh, that no bodies had ever been buried in this tomb. It was a rolling stone tomb, not this particular one that you're looking at. This is about 50 miles away, but this is exactly how it would have looked. Um, We know that Joseph and Nicodemus brought with them uh, in a a rush, in a hurry, they had managed to accumulate about 75 pounds 
of powdered burial spices, which was a lot. That's a lot. And they brought with them some long pieces of linen cloth. We know that they took the body of Jesus off the cross, which would have been difficult. They took the body uh, to this tomb, put it in the linen cloth, probably laid some spices in, and then they rolled the stone closed and it was sealed. Now, just a little bit of details about this so you can get a better understanding of what's going on. These kinds of rolling stone tombs are all over Israel. They're very common. Um, Don and I had the chance back in 1987 to be there, and we actually uh, got to crawl in some of these rolling stone tombs, all of them now empty, of course. They've been looted and emptied a long time ago. Um, But a tomb like this, a rolling stone tomb, was a tomb that was always intended just for very wealthy families. Only wealthy people could afford this. Um, They were costly tombs to build. The stone, the rolling stone, was a stone. It wasn't meant to be closed just one time. The idea was that the stone could be opened and closed multiple times because over the years, many different family members would be buried in these tombs. So it would be sealed after a burial, but the next time it would be used, they could open the tomb again. When a body would be placed in these tombs at first, uh, this is a diagram, I hope it is visible for where you are. The body would always be placed on a stone bench just inside the doorway to the tomb. It's on this stone bench where the body would be prepared for burial. Usually, according to Jewish custom, when they placed the body there, the first thing that would happen is the body would be thoroughly washed and then anointed with oil and then wrapped in a cloth. Usually, the cloth would be placed down first. Some spices would be put down on top of the cloth. Then the body would be placed on top of that, and the cloth would be folded up and over top of the person and then packed with more spices. Sometimes, um, they'd put coins on the person's eyes, And then often they would use a separate cloth either to go on the person's face or sometimes they used it, uh, they would knot it it around the person's head to keep keep the mouth closed. And then they would often take separate pieces of linen and over that whole thing in which it was enclosed, they would like use a few pieces to wrap that all up tight. Not like a mummy, but just a few different pieces to wrap it all up tight to keep all of the spices together. Now on this occasion, what we know is that Joseph and Nicodemus were running out of time for this. It's late in the day. Um, It's near sundown. The Sabbath was very quickly approaching. So they didn't have a lot of time. So they took the body, we're told. They laid it in the tomb on the bench. They put it in the linen cloth, probably put some spices in it. Then they rolled the stone closed and left, almost certainly intending to come back at a later time to finish preparing the body. Now, again, just as a little bit of detail, typically after a body would be prepared on that bench and all wrapped up, usually in these tombs there was a series of niches. You may be able to see that on the picture. Um, These niches in Hebrew are called koch, K-O-K-H in Hebrew. And a body, once it was prepared, it would be slid into this little burial niche or into this koch. And in this burial niche, the body would be left for years to decompose. Now, Donna and I, uh, when we were there, we had a chance to actually crawl around in some of the basements and side rooms of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is traditionally, and almost certainly, the, the actual site where Jesus 
uh, was buried. In the ancient world, uh, long before this was a church, this site where the Holy Sepulchre now is, this church, this was actually a very large burial complex. It was a very large family tomb. And in some of the basements and side rooms, there are still some of these burial niches, these kokim, that are still visible. So we found them and we took pictures of them. And these, these, kokes, these kokim, these niches are about six feet deep, little over one foot tall, and just wide enough for a body to be slid into one of these. If you get claustrophobia, um, you would probably feel queasy just looking at these things. I couldn't get myself to crawl in um, to one. Now, eventually, the bodies in these cocaine, in these niches, they would uh, become just bones. And what the Jews did then is the bones would be collected, and the bones from the person would be all piled together. Maybe they'd all be put into one little niche, one cocaine. Sometimes they'd be put into a, a limestone box called an ossuary, and the bones of the whole family would be collected and kept together, which, which is why these, these tombs uh, could be passed down in families and they could be used over and over again for generations and generations of family members. In this case, we're told Joseph had one of these tombs, a wealthy family, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. It had never been used. It was new, and the body of Jesus was placed there. And in the rush to beat sundown and the Sabbath, the body of Jesus was placed on the bench just inside the door, and the whole preparation for the burial of Jesus hadn't been finished. We know that there were some women, we're told by the gospel writers, some women who had been devoted to Jesus, who kept at a distance. They were there at the cross. They saw Jesus die. They were witnesses to Joseph and Nicodemus taking the body off the cross, and they stayed at a distance, and they watched where Joseph and Nicodemus buried Jesus. And when the Sabbath was over, when the Sabbath came to an end, they said their plan was to return to this tomb. They knew where it was. And to take care of the body of this man whom they had deeply loved. They knew he hadn't been buried properly. All of which leads to Sunday morning, uh, very early Sunday morning, the gospel writers tell us it's still dark. Uh, the Sabbath had ended. It's zero, dark 30, whatever. And Mary Magdalene led a group of women to the tomb. And scripture tells us that on the way, they were wondering with each other, how, how are we going to manage to roll the stone away? To their horror, when they got there, they found that the stone was open. Stone was rolled away, the tomb was open. And because there was not a single person alive who even remotely expected this, what happened, they naturally assumed the worst, that someone had desecrated the tomb and stolen the body. So Mary, um, Mary Magdalene, probably with several other women, they, they ran from the tomb to go tell Peter and John, um, John who is the author of this gospel, an eyewitness, which I know when I read this, uh, John never identifies himself. John always, every time he appears in the gospel, he never says I or uses his name. He always says either the other disciple or he says the disciple whom Jesus loved, which sounds odd to us, but that's the way they did it. So it's John who is an eyewitness. 
They tell Peter and John. Peter and John take off running to the tomb. John says that he got to the tomb because the entrances are always low. John says he stooped, but he didn't go in. He just looked in. He looked to the right where he knew the body had been on that bench. And John saw something that made his synapses sizzle. The burial cloth of Jesus was still lying on the bench as if a body had been in it. But the cloth was partially collapsed, but it still looked like a shell of a body. Which made John instantly realize, wait a second, nobody stole this body. How do you take a body out of a cloth like that? And how do you get a cloth looking like that if you took the body? John says a few seconds later, while he's processing this, Peter arrived immediately after him. Peter, no holds barred Peter. Peter doesn't stop and look in. Peter just races right into the tomb. John followed him in, and from the inside, John saw something equally strange that he wasn't able to see from the outside. The cloth that had been around Jesus' head or on his face, we're not sure which, that cloth had been folded up or rolled up and placed by itself separately, almost as if somebody had tidied up before leaving. John saw this. There are two very important sentences that follow. If you're looking at your Bible, it's verses 8 and 9. John says he saw this and believed. But then there's this very next sentence. But they, meaning Peter and John, still didn't understand. They didn't understand a scripture that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Now, this is really important. Because those are two very odd sentences to have back to back. The one sentence says John believed, and the next sentence says, but he still didn't understand. Now, I know that sometimes, depending on the Bible you're looking at, translators really try to struggle with these sentences because, in truth, they don't make any sense back to back. And they'll do what they do like with, with my Bible, the, the one that many of you are reading from as well, and they make it sound like John believed, but he didn't understand until that moment, but now he did. But that's not what he says. What he says is really difficult. It really says John saw and believed, but he still didn't understand. Didn't understand that Scripture said Jesus had to rise from the dead. Which means if you get the conundrum, the problem here, it means that we have to end up asking a really important question, one that honestly we can't answer entirely. What is it that John believed? What did he believe? If he didn't understand the whole ball of wax, what did John believe at this moment? I think there are two things you have to remember about this. They're important if you pause for a second. I don't have time to review what we talked about last week, but hopefully you remember that Last week when we talked about this, John actually said at the conclusion of this book, John took the time to tell us why he wrote this book in the first place. 
And John said, I collected all this and I wrote it down because I want you to believe. I want you to believe. And John actually emphasizes the whole way through this book, especially in these last couple chapters, John will emphasize over and over, even in chapter 19, when he's describing the scene on the cross, John said, I am an eyewitness to these events. I am giving an accurate account. I'm speaking the truth so that you can believe. So what John is telling us is that at this exact moment, standing in this dark tomb, John came to believe. What did he believe? Well, he knew without doubt that the body hadn't been stolen. He knew without doubt that no one had taken the body. No one could remove a body from a burial cloth like that. But he knew the body wasn't there. So having read Sherlock Holmes, who used to say, if you eliminate all the possibilities, Whatever remains, however improbable, is likely the truth. And John began to realize that his body isn't here because he's alive. Alive. And yet, there's the very next sentence. He still didn't understand. So do you understand what this is? This is faith being born from doubt. And faith always starts from doubt. Always. The pursuit of truth always starts from doubt. It cannot start any other way. Think about how this works in relationships, for, for example. The hardest part of any relationship is that beginning of a relationship that always begins with doubt and uncertainty. We meet in the gym, for example, after standing side by side at the ellipticals for a couple days, and we start to recognize the same guy standing next to me, start to chat a little bit, and after a little while, we start to realize that we both like bike rides. Do I invite you along for a bike ride? And if I do, when we both show up in the parking lot, if I'm decked out in spandex, and you are wearing cutoffs. What do you think of me? Or if we go for a bike ride and you wear spandex too and you leave me in the dust, I'm going to feel like a loser. We'll never ride again. Or if we go for the bike ride and I leave you in the dust and you're a slowpoke and this is supposed to be a workout for me and it isn't. Now what do we do the next time we're at the gym and start talking about a bike ride? Oh, I don't ride anymore, I say. 
Or suppose I tell you about a great book I read or a movie I saw, and I say, you should see it. It was great. You should read it. Will you like it? Or if you go to the movie and you end up saying to your wife, he liked this? That's the stupidest movie I've ever seen. There is always uncertainty, doubt at the beginning of every relationship, always. Every relationship gets born in doubt. And the truth is, it always stays there. Always does. We get to know each other very well, become great friends and love each other, and someday we need to talk because I'm burdened. Something in my life is going badly wrong. So I decide to trust you and tell you about this burden, but I say to you, but it's a secret. Can you keep it in confidence? Will you? Or will you betray me? Our deepest relationships, our deepest relationships always start with moments of uncertainty. I didn't have the benefit of dating in this digital age, but sometimes I ponder how many future generations of brand new DNA hangs in the balance of that moment of swipe right or swipe left. And some of you are clueless about what that means, and that's just fine. I actually think that it's a shame that there are so few of you young people who will ever know the terror of that moment of walking up to a real live girl and asking her to her face, hey, would you like to go out to a movie with me? It is a sweat-producing moment of doubt. Yes? <laughs> yes or no? And what follows that yes is not certainty, is it? Dating is a process of strategic doubt. Will there be another? Will she like me? Will she recoil if during the movie I do that yawn thing and get my arm around her? And then after an hour and a half when my arm is asleep and I can't feel it anymore, what will she say if I have to work to get that back? <laughs> and then the first kiss. Will she respond? Or will she say, who taught you how to kiss? It's an intense time of doubt and discovery. And it's that intensity of doubt and discovery that makes the process of falling in love so euphoric. It's what makes it to be such an intense emotional experience, those hormones just overflowing our bodies as we experience doubt and discovery. And that's also why as love starts to mature, it's why the roller coaster of emotions starts to settle and calm down. But even then, even after years and years, you still never get certainty. You think you want certainty, but you don't. 
What you want is trust wisely placed. Certainty is for robots. And that's a nightmare. Anybody ever remember seeing the movie Stepford Wives? Not the remake, but the original from the 70s. Far better than the remake. Stepford is a community where all the wives secretly get replaced by robots who look just like the original but are not truly alive. Now they dress exactly like their husbands want them to. They clean up after all their husband's messes. They cook only his favorite foods. They never disagree. They are devoted 100% to the husband's pleasure and happiness all the time. Is that what you want? <laughs> um, the, the correct answer is, is no, if you're in doubt. Stepford is a nightmare. When you watch the movie and you watch this young girl, you are rooting for her. No, no, because you know the nightmare. You know that in Stepford there is no love, no meaningful relationships. It's actually the death to love. Trust, faith is the only way that relationships ever operate, ever. You never get certainty, not completely. Which is why we call our religion what we do, we call it our faith. And our faith is not contained in a set of beliefs. Our faith is not just a list of things we believe. It is coming to believe in a person. That's what happened to John in this old dark tomb. Believing gets born in a tomb. It gets born in doubt, which is where all relationships start. It's where truth always starts. Doubt pushes us to want to know what we do not understand. And that is a very good place to be. So you don't get bonus points if you can say, yes, I think I can muster up enough faith to believe in the resurrection. If you read the history of, the event, of this event, even the bad guys came to believe in that. Faith is actually coming to believe in Jesus. It's trusting him, which is why believing always gets born here for John, who said, I believe, but I don't understand. Faith gets born in doubt always. Faith is coming to believe that Jesus is right. How can you, how can any human being trust Jesus for all eternity if you can't trust him for the everyday moments of life? 
with every person you meet, do you trust Jesus enough to treat this person as Jesus would ask you to? With every dollar you have, do you trust Jesus enough to treat these dollars as Jesus would ask you to? With every word you speak, do you trust Jesus enough to speak them as Jesus would ask you to? With every fear, every worry, every regret, every failure, every joy, every thought, do you trust Jesus enough to treat them as Jesus would ask you to? For John, believing gets born in a really dark place, a tomb. When for the very first moment, John says, I came to believe he's not here because he's alive. And then doubt, uncertainty, not understanding would push John. It would push him to discover the truth about Jesus and he would come to trust Jesus with all of his days, all of his thoughts, all of his words, all of his life, all of his eternity. And so at the end of his life, John sat down to write a book. Because John said, I want to tell you what I saw, what I heard, what I touched. Because I want you to believe in him too. So that by believing in him, you too might have life in his name. So if like John, you're still in a very dark place when it comes to faith, if you doubt but are willing to let doubt push you to find truth, well, then that dark place may be for you a very good place to be. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that we today know so much about what went on with a whole lot of trust we can know. And yet, God, regardless of what it is that we know, we're still left with Jesus. And we're still left with this invitation. Do we believe in him? God, I pray that you would be growing my belief and I pray that you'd be doing the same for every single person in this room, regardless of where they are, whatever dark place they may be in. I, I pray that like John, that every single one of us would be willing to let our doubts push us to truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.